0: Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering, and this week we're going to be talking about pro-life policy here at the federal level in this recent bill, the Equality Act, that's being considered and voted on in the House this week, as well as uh, really hopeful uh, pro-life policy bills that are happening all throughout the uh, all throughout the United States at the state level. And I'm really excited uh, to be joined by my colleague and co-host most weeks, Chelsea Patterson-Soblick, to welcome our friend Katie Glenn of our partner organization, Americans United for Life. Chelsea, Katie, thanks for joining me on this week's episode of Capital Conversations.
1: Good to be back, Jeff. Great to be here.
0: All right. So, Katie, This is your first time joining us on Capital Conversations, but it's not the first time we've had a friend of ours from AUL. Uh, Just a few weeks ago at our annual Evangelicals for Life conference, we had Steve Aiden of AUL on a panel talking about a lot of these same issues, but I wanted to get into some of them in more detail with you. And so you've been on our list to talk about AUL's uh, great work in in all uh, state legislatures on pro life policies, but then we also thought it'd be great to talk to you about the Equality Act, which is uh, going to be up for a vote. By the time folks are listening to this, it could have already been voted on in the House. Um, this is a bill that uh, that seeks to uh, seeks to change the. Uh, Civil Rights Act and civil rights law, all titles of civil rights law, um, to add in sexual orientation and gender identity uh, protections alongside all of the other protections in that law. Uh, But while its aim uh, is uh, at least popularly understood to be all about uh, LGBTQ issues and, and civil rights issues associated with them, the bill also would have some pretty dramatic effects on our nation's federal abortion policies. And so when this when this bill popped up in headlines as it was going to be voted on this week, even though there have been no committee hearings or, or any any other of the normal standard operating procedures that you would expect for a bill this massive and uh, that would contain this many dramatic changes uh, to the federal code, it's going to be on the floor of the House of Representatives. And, uh, and we thought it'd be great to have you on to talk about the uh, the ways in which this bill would deal with and change abortion policy at the at the federal level. So let's just start there. What is in the Equality Act as it relates to abortion?
2: Well, there are a couple of things that would have major implications related to abortion, and and you're totally right that that has not gotten attention. Uh, from the media and from certainly the sponsors of the bill. They really want to focus on this kind of feel-good equality. But what the bill would do um, in the space that that I focus on in abortion and conscience is it would significantly increase um, the types of businesses and employers that would be covered by these laws. Um, It would widen what is considered a public accommodation historically, That was things like hotels and gas stations. You know, the Civil Rights Act was meant to to right horrific wrongs, like um, families being unable to stop at a hotel or a restaurant while they were traveled across the country. This would widen up the definitions of those and sweep in a lot more businesses and organizations, including many uh, faith-based organizations, to suddenly have to um, comply with this new expanded definition of sex that would include an implicit right to abortion. So it expands sex, not only in in the sexual orientation and gender identity way that's gotten a lot of attention, but also to include this nebulous concept of pregnancy status, which has been defined in the courts to include abortion. So there are a lot of longstanding federal laws that come into play here, such as the Hyde Amendment, which prevents taxpayer funding for abortion, Uh, such as other programs that are meant to be for family planning that are um, pre-pregnancy or prenatal care, suddenly abortion could potentially be roped into that. And there could be this idea that it's discrimination, which is such a strong word if a business or a nonprofit refuses to participate in or pay for an abortion.
0: So a lot of these changes to the federal code that would deal with abortion and and Abortion being provided, forced to be provided in health care policies. Is this similar to what the Supreme Court was dealing with in the Hobby Lobby case?
2: So it's a piece of that, right? In that case, um, the Affordable Care Act said that employer-funded health insurance had to pay for contraception, not just provide it, but actually cover it. And there were a number of employers, both private and nonprofits, uh, religious or non-religious, who said, I have a religious or moral concern with that. I can't do it. I don't want to be a part of it. If the government has a policy that they want to make contraception as cheap and available as possible, like I don't want to be a part of that. They can figure out how to distribute it, but count me out. And that's really what's going on here. One of our big concerns with the Equality Act is that one interpretation of it is that within um, healthcare. If you do a type of procedure in any context, you must do it in every context. And so for us, the big way that this comes up is um, if, if DNC is used as part of miscarriage management, then a Catholic hospital or an evangelical hospital could potentially be told, then you have to do a DNC abortion, which is obviously very different because you are ending the life of the baby versus treating the woman after she's had a natural miscarriage. Um, There are certainly other concerns related to things like mastectomies or giving out certain drugs. But, um, you know, this idea that hospitals would be forced to stop providing type of care related to miscarriage because it opens them up to do abortions, uh, it's just like a total government run amok.
0: Right. And it's a really shocking departure from the ways in which we understand civic tolerance uh, in the healthcare space, I mean there there is a lot of conversation, and we've advocated for bills such as the Conscience Protection Act to, I would say, I would say to give greater clarity where there is unfortunate ambiguity that has been taken advantage of with people objecting to like nurses who have been forced against their will uh, for their moral or religious convictions to participate in abortion. There are also doctors who uh, choose not to, maybe for moral and religious reasons, but also often for scientific reasons, not to perform a gender reassignment surgery, for example. And so we have this foundation of civic tolerance that the Equality Act really squares in on and threatens, not just from a religious freedom standpoint, but also from a moral and a scientific standpoint as it relates to forcing healthcare providers into providing services against their own judgment. And, uh, and sometimes that's moral and religious. Also, sometimes it's just their scientific judgment as a healthcare provider. Uh, and so it's, it's a really stunning departure from the foundations of America is a place where people with a lot of diverging views can live at peace with one another. So,
1: Katie, is it too dramatic to say that the Equality Act would essentially create abortion on demand as our federal policy?
2: Well, it's certainly a goal of a lot of the proponents of that bill, whether through the Equality Act or through, you know, other the the Department of Justice clearinghouse that Senator, now Vice President Harris, um, ran with when she was running for president uh, certainly, a goal, a stated goal, is to uh, roll back state laws, to roll back good court decisions, and to have abortion on demand without exception, paid for by the government. So, paid for by all of us. And I think we definitely see the Equality Act as a huge part of effectuating that. Um, you know, Jeff was talking about the scientific or ethical reasons that a person would want to opt out. Uh, The Hippocratic Oath is not covered under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So we think that's a great law and it's used in so many contexts. But if you're an atheist or an agnostic or simply a doctor or healthcare provider who says the Hippocratic Oath forbids me from doing an abortion or from doing gender reassignment, you're out of luck with the protections as they currently stand. So the Equality Act will only make that worse.
1: I'm so glad that we spent time covering uh, the the pro-life concerns in this bill, Uh, but this bill also has extremely important implications for faith-based adoption and foster care providers. Can you talk about some of those?
2: Yeah, well, certainly it um, puts a thumb on the scale that if you are a faith-based organization that supports a policy of traditional marriage, uh, even of wanting to only adopt to two parent households. Uh, you could potentially run afoul of this law. Um, about a dozen states have passed state protections protecting faith-based adoption agencies. But it's unclear how, if the Equality Act were passed and signed into law, how th- that would interact with these state laws. Certainly, the goal of the sponsors of the bill would be to repeal all those state laws. And so it could potentially shut down uh, faith-based ad- adoption and foster care providers like we've seen all over the country.
0: So, Katie, we've been talking a lot about the ways in which the Equality Act would affect state laws, and that's because we're we're a big federalist system where uh, we were talking before the show about some of your issues with the idea of a lab experiment of democracy what's the what's the saying the you know it's this like wonderful experiment of the democracy where 50, 50 some odd states uh, get to get to decide the ways in which they'll have people like you come in and testify or ways that you can't come in and testify and it's different state by state. Well pro-life laws are also different state by state and is where we have seen a lot of progress in recent years on the pro-life movement's priorities to protect life. Uh, in state laws. And so I want to, I want to talk about that, but Chelsea, I want to come to you first because there's a, there was a bill in South Carolina that the RLC was involved in. That's made news uh, as recently as last Friday. Tell us about what's going on in South Carolina.
1: Sure. So South Carolina, governor uh, McMaster signed that uh, bill on February 18th. And then just a few days later, a federal court issued a temporary restricting order on the bill. But the South Carolina attorney general has signaled that he is willing to fight for this bill in the courts.
0: So, Katie, you're a lawyer. You work on these issues at the state level. I'm going to have you do an overview here in a bit, but let's zoom in on on South Carolina because I think it's an instructive case. What happens next when a state passes a great pro-life law like this and then the abortion industry is able to successfully get a judge to issue an injunction and halt the law? Is that it? What happens next? Help folks understand that.
2: (laughs) Sure. Well, you know, uh, zooming way out right now, there are about 40 cases traveling around federal and state courts that are challenging various um, pro-life laws that have been passed. Um, So what we see, like we saw um, last year with June Medical, is that eventually some of these cases wind up in the Supreme Court. And that's where we get Uh, greater clarity from them, you know, in 1973 in Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court took this issue that had been percolating through the states. States had been passing various policies based on what they uh, believed was best for their state, what their voters wanted. And the Supreme Court just grabbed all that power away and they struck down all these state laws in all 50 states and they said basically abortion on demand without delay, without limitation And that's all you got. And so it's taken us nearly 50 years. You know, AUL is 50 years old. We started this fight in 1971. And since 1973, AUL has been fighting back and getting clarity from the Supreme court. What do these rules actually mean? You know, we've got, um, the viability standard. Well, what does viability mean? What does that mean with emerging technology? You know, Chelsea mentioned, um, an ultrasound, seeing a heartbeat at six weeks. I, was recently recently at a pregnancy care center with the newest, uh, latest model of ultrasound technology. And we were able to see a heartbeat at five weeks, seven days or six days. So, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I think, you know, technology and science is the best thing we have to show humanity of these children. So courts are constantly forced to revisit these issues, um, And I think, you know, South Carolina, alongside Alabama and Georgia and a couple of other states will be fighting to hope that the Supreme Court will hear their case so that they can argue why they think that um, the standard needs to shift once again. There's a sort of a similar case right now in Arkansas in the Eighth Circuit, where you had two really strong opinions from circuit judges where Claim Parenthood, other groups were just challenging a Down syndrome prohibition. So this is a law saying you cannot abort a baby because of a Down syndrome diagnosis. And they said, we know that this is eugenics. We know that this is a crisis. We know that two thirds of babies that are diagnosed in utero are aborted. But because this law bans abortions ahead of viability, we have to strike it down. But these two judges said, like, that is what the Supreme Court forces us to do, but we call on them to take up this issue, to reevaluate viability as a standard, because it's unthinkable to us that the government could come here and say, we want to end disability discrimination. We want to end Down syndrome discrimination. And you can do that in every context you want once the person is born. But for a pre-born person with Down syndrome, there's absolutely nothing you can do. How is that good policy? So I think with South Carolina and these other states, you know, they're trying to sort of pierce that veil of viability, which has been the standard now for uh, several decades, and show that viability is not when a person becomes a person.
0: You know, there's also an important conscience shaping work that's going along alongside the legal and judicial effort, because for a lot of people in the United States, they probably have no idea of that statistic that you just shared could you share it again about how many uh, how many abortions were taking place after a after a Down syndrome diagnosis
2: yeah so um, two-thirds of babies that are diagnosed in the womb with Down syndrome will be aborted and and um, you know, I was so happy to see an Eighth Circuit judge cite that statistic in his decision. We need that on the record. But also we've got Dr. Warren Hearn in Boulder, Colorado, one of the only doctors in the United States who does abortions after 30 weeks. And he says that's the number one reason why they do abortions at his clinic. And he published that. That's his words, not mine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's an important it's an important part of the overall work of making abortion unthinkable in our society is on this two track plan of seeking justice through our legal system, uh, and as you said, piercing that veil of of standards like viability, while also helping shape the conscience of the nation for what really is happening when we're talking about abortion on the scale that we're talking about here in the country. And, um, you know, that that's horrific for a lot of people, but it's an important part of, of shaping the conscience such that we would recognize abortion for what it is.
1: Speaking of that, Jeff, um, we were chatting before we hit record and Katie had shared a statistic. I actually hadn't heard put as succinctly as you put it, Katie, can you share that statistic about how much of our generation is missing because of abortion?
2: Yeah. So uh, every year, I think you see the sign at the March for Life and it never gets easier. And it says one fourth of my generation is missing. And when you think about it, you know, 62 million and counting abortions in this in this country alone, just in the United States, one fourth of our generation, all three of us are millennials. Is missing because of abortion, and I actually in uh, 2020 took a pro-choice friend with me to the March for Life. Uh, she'd asked to come, and you know I, I said yes, of course. Uh, and that was the thing that she, it stuck in her craw all day. She said, "Is that true?" And she was googling it. She's like, "Can that be true?" And and tragically, it is. So I think that's part of um, why we see so many young pro-life activists, you know, on college campuses, um, outside of Planned Parenthoods, volunteering at care centers, um, because they see this reality. It's it's our peers, our classmates, our siblings who are gone and we'll we will never know them until we reach heaven. Hmm. I'm so glad you brought that up because
1: I think it's easy uh for us to talk about these policies and they're so, so important, but that makes it you know, it helps me remember and it helps us remember that when we talk about this issue that we're talking about precious lives made in the image of God and the fact that one fourth of our generation isn't with us ought to break every one of our hearts and compel us to action. So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad we had this uh, discussion.
0: So Katie, let's talk about some of that action. Uh, Each year, AUL puts together a great uh, review of what happened in uh, in the state legislative sessions. So what happened in 2020 as it relates to these sorts of life-affirming laws in the states?
2: Well, in spite of the sort of chaos of state legislative sessions shutting down early, many of them going remote, um, I know we were talking about how it's down to the committee level, whether they are doing remote testimony or not. So you don't even, it's not the state level, it's not even the chamber, it's whether the committee member wants to let you. Uh, <laughs> Which makes
0: it fun for a professional like you who spends her time testifying before all of these committees and and learning learning how each each is going to receive said testimony.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely added a new new learning curve this year, but in 2020 we were still able to get a couple dozen bills passed already this year. You know, we talked about South Carolina heartbeat, another bill that's passed and gone into law is Kentucky's born alive law, which they passed it at the very end of their session last year. The governor vetoed Uh, They came back at him, and they said, we will do this again, and we have a veto-proof majority. They passed it at the very beginning of the session this year, and he let it go into effect. He didn't sign it, but he didn't veto it because he knew they would overrule him. So we're really excited that um, we've got lawmakers who are on fire. They're enthusiastic. Um, In Montana, they've got several good bills percolating up. Um, headed towards the governor, they've had um, a governor who's been very veto happy the last few years, Scott Bullock, and now um, Congressman Gianforte, who is a great pro-life voice in the House, is now the governor of that state. And so they've got several pro-life laws they're planning to pass, which they've been unable to do. So we were really glad that in 2021, lawmakers are facing the challenges that have come up um, in the context of covid uh, related to things like telehealth and and making sure that they are still, um, you know, affirming life in their state.
1: So Katie, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why uh, you think the abortion rate has continued to trend downward.
2: Yeah, well, uh, Dr. Michael New at uh, CUA has done really good research on this. And he's found that passing state pro-life laws is one of the biggest correlative effects When you have strong, robust health and safety laws, um, the abortion rate goes down. A lot of that's due to education, things like informed consent, showing a woman the ultrasound, like having that bonding moment where she realizes this is a human being, this is my child, Um, providing her with other resources, saying, you know, here are pregnancy centers that will help you. Here are government resources available to you. Uh, A couple of states right now are looking at bills where it would – tell the woman that the father of the baby is financially responsible. Like he is a part of this, sharing those resources with her. So she knows she's not alone because we know that's the number one reason women seek abortion is because they think there's no one there to help them. So I think, you know, as we've got on the culture and life side, um, pregnancy care centers popping up all over the country, all these resources being available and showing that, then we're also having the information and education about, who this baby is and what their life could look like, uh, and I think you know we get things like in the culture accidental very pro life moments like the Super Bowl commercial which you guys probably saw um, about the Paralympian where like how can you watch that and not cry when her mom says like her life won't be easy but it will be amazing like every single baby has the possibility of an amazing life and uh, they don't have to be a Paralympian <laughs> and a decorated you know medal winner. To have an amazing meaningful life, so I was so glad to see that on national television.
0: Yeah, that that commercial, I, I'm uh, I've got chills here just just thinking about it. And I, in case somebody missed it, because they were going back to their kitchen to get more dip during the uh, d- during a commercial break, I'll link to it because uh, it was it was really really beautiful. Uh, not only from a sanctity of human life that that child was made in the image of god even though um even though they'd be born with a with a disability that would make life difficult but there was also just the the grit of the actor portraying the mom of saying what you just what you just said Katie that her life won't be easy but you know it will be worth it and it'll be beautiful and and uh <laughs> that was a beautiful moment um so Let's talk about the future. Rounding rounding out this rounding out this conversation, we've seen the abortion rate go down. We have lawmakers uh, who are more keyed into these issues across the states. Their success there. There are many constitution, many more constitutionalist, originalist judges throughout the federal judiciary after after the Trump presidency and and. Uh, and really McConnell's efforts in the Senate uh, to leave, what was his saying, leave no vacancy behind for the first time ever. So so there are some reasons, you know, there are some reasons to be hopeful. There are also reasons um, to recognize the, the threat for what it is in our culture with states on the other side. You know, I'm, I'm still thinking about the state of New York passing a a just really horrifically sweeping pro-abortion uh, bill in the last couple of years. And to celebrate, uh, they lit up the One World Trade Center in pink. Uh, and the cognitive dissonance of watching that building be awashed in pink to celebrate abortion while at the base of that building, the pre-born children uh, who were who passed as a result of the September 11th attacks uh, are honored in the memorial there. Um, it says, you know, the pregnant woman's name and her unborn child. Um, And so to to see that, there are some reasons to feel feel frustrated, Uh, not quite discouraged, but there's a lot of debate happening right now uh, in the pro-life space. So for somebody listening to this, what can they do to be a part of ensuring that this debate leads us to a better life-affirming future?
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, at your own community level, if you are volunteering for a pregnancy care center, share that on your social media, let people know. Um, I recently had a friend who is not (laughs) pro-life, reach out to help for help, because she knows a young woman who was unexpectedly pregnant. And she's like, do you know of any care centers in this state? And so when you Make it known that you're someone who isn't going to just like try to win the fight, but you want to really genuinely help people. Like That's where I think on our local level, we can do the most good. Um, I'm a government affairs person. So of course, I have to say, call your local lawmakers. Tell them what you think about bills running through your state. Definitely do that too. They're, they're keeping track of that. So if you feel like, oh, I don't know what to say, you can just call them and say, I support this bill or I oppose this bill they they're keeping numbers running on how many people they're hearing from so don't feel like you have to say say it perfectly to to make a difference
0: well Katie I know I speak for Chelsea and I and our whole team at RLC. it's one of the things we love about working with y'all at uh, Americans United for Life that you that you have that perspective of The pro-life movement isn't just about winning a fight. It's about winning hearts and minds. It's about being uh, caring and winsome to recognize um, that, as President Biden once recognized in his career, right, that every abortion is a tragedy, Um, and, and helping us chart a brighter and a more hopeful path forward. Um, Because it's not just about the fight. It's about creating a culture and a system of laws where justice for all is upheld and life is affirmed. So Katie, appreciate your partnership in this work. Thanks again for joining Chelsea and I on Capital Conversations.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: And where can folks keep up with you and the work of AUL?
2: Yes, you can uh, check out all of our publications, including the two new ones this month on AUL.org. We've got a 50-state look at abortion clinic deficiencies. So that is like the dark and dirty stuff that's happening in these businesses. It's at aul.org slash unsafe. You can download the whole report for free. It's got a section on each state and then defending life 2021, which is our playbook on the survey of all the state laws is also available this week at aul.org, or you can follow us on social media at aul.
0: Awesome. Thanks again, Katie. Thank you. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show, found it helpful, I'd encourage you to to send a link to this podcast uh, to a friend or family member in your community. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations wherever you are listening, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else, so you never miss an episode. While you're there, uh, leave us a rating and a review. This really will help others find our show, and we would love to welcome as many folks as possible around the Capital Conversations roundtable. Resources from today's episode are available in the show notes as well as at erlc.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next week.